0: All right, um. So did you finish the Gambler? <laughs> All right, let's try to put um, some things together about gambling. Did, how, for how many people is gambling like, hi, um, like something that you can see the attraction and the power of? And no, of course not. (laughs) I mean it was good because like that going to the stock market like it helps you like win against people. You can take advantage of them, but personally So so all the stories that Whitehead and Dostoevsky are telling about just how people can get obsessed with Um, and just lose track of time, lose track of themselves, and just be completely intent on what's going on on a gaming table. That's like, what are they talking about for you? Or it's, oh, I could take advantage of these people. Pretty much, like the psychology. Because there's a certain frame that you have if you're going into that, and if you know that people have that, you can take advantage of it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I think that, yeah. So one of the strange things, I think, about gambling... Um, and about the kinds of people who win are that they don't actually feel the pull. That is, that what they're doing is they're taking advantage of the pull that other people are feeling. And so if you see, and if you're doing that playing the market, if you see that people are being wishful, um, okay. Um, if you see that people are being wishful and that they are betting irrationally, then you see that as a way of, of taking advantage of them, but you're not having the experience of just feeling like heart and soul is on the next roll of the dice, that you yourself are totally invested in it, right? So how many people get the experience of being totally invested in just losing yourself in, in a game of chance in gambling? No one's ever I've had it have it or understand it. Well, A have it, B understand it. So do you ever have it? B, I I don't know, like, I get into game shows sometimes, like, if it's just on TV, and it seems... To, I'm not, like, personally playing, but, like, I am pulled by that idea of, like, oh, you have to get this, or split it, or whatever, and then you'll get the million, or whatever. Right. It's, like, that kind of, like, I, I'm, I don't know, I'm entertained, which makes me think that it pulls me in somehow. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. So, but do you ever yell at the TV? I don't, I don't... Really- yell at people on the TV? No. No? What about in sports? What if you're watching a, No, I kind of just grumble to myself. I don't yell at the TV. i kind of like, ah. Oh. Yeah, okay, so yeah. That, 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 it's it's in the same, how to say, ballpark. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's in the same casino. I mean, all right. And I might do that during a game show, too. Yeah. yeah. Like, you idiot. Yeah. Do you ever say, you idiot? <laughs> I would also say, like, that was dumb. Yeah, all right. <laughs> I say that a lot. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Okay, even when you're alone. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um. What were you going to say, Jimmy? No, no, I was going to say, uh, yeah, no, I've gotten, like, investigating games of chance. I guess. Yeah, all right. Um, where you just, where you do things on the basis, so, and you, you're you you're saying, Andrea, you understand it, but you don't feel it. Uh, I guess, like, in the same vein of, like, what people have been saying, like, this is such a weird example, but I was, like, at, like, in high school. I would play this video game and it like in it you could earn money and then you could bet it. Uh-huh. And I got in the hole in the video game where I was betting on my money, and I was like, I can never do this in real life. Yeah, <laughs> okay, well that's good. <laughs> that's good. Um, on the other hand, real money has a kind of magical quality that would allow you to win. Video games, it's all just programmed, but with real money, it's like if you if you if you really want to win enough, you will. Um. I think part of it is because this is like because like I found like, Winning, like every time, mm-hmm. and I lost, and I was like, No, I know how to win, <laughs> and it was kind of that cycle, like, No, I know I'm doing this right, uh-huh. like, yeah, I'll definitely win this next time if I keep playing. Yeah. yeah, all right, um, yeah, sort of reminds me of what we've talked about with the sublime, uh huh, about how there's something irresistible about standing on the precipice of danger, yeah, and that's sort of what gambling is, mm-hmm. standing on the precipice of. Losing all your money, right? Yeah, and okay. So, so let's put some of the stuff that we've been talking about together. And so, one thing uh, that we've been talking about is the MacGuffin, and the MacGuffin. The way Ainsley is talking about it, and let me. Uh, I just want to say something. Uh, just, just give a brief uh, notice of a couple of really um, important things that Ainsley is saying about how addiction to gambling works, but that's partly that Ainsley is describing how addiction works. So the puzzle about addiction is that you want something short-term, like you really, really want to do one more bet, one more play, um, one more hit of oxy, one more um, uh, snort of coke. You really want to do it, and this will be the last one. One more cigarette. Uh, one more cup of coffee, and then you're going to um, purify your lifestyle. So you want to do both things, but those two things are in in contrast to each other. Those, those two things contradict each other. Your desires are inconsistent with each other. And that's what it means to be a human being, as we all know, is to have inconsistent desires. And the inconsistency, as Ainsley is understanding it, and as he's showing occurs everywhere, unless you're Joseph, is that our shorter and our longer-term desires will, the the, the inconsistency settles out, cashes out, plays out in terms of how how long or short-term our desire is. So I want one more cigarette and then I'm going to be a non-smoker, then what I'm doing is I am have a short-term desire for this cigarette and instead of just saying no, I'm a non-smoker right now, I have this short-term desire for a cigarette that in the short term outweighs what is a much more deep desire not to smoke because I want to live longer. So short-term desire is a cigarette, one cigarette's not going to harm me very much, long-term desire is to be a non-smoker, but I also know that every cigarette that I have is the cigarette that that cigarette I'm having because it won't hurt me much. So there's a kind of prisoner's dilemma kind of thing going on here, which is that every choice that you make is reasonable for that particular choice, but those choices all accrete into a long-term situation, which is that you're a smoker. So the reason Ainsley picks gambling is that you can't ascribe that addiction and that contrast and that inconsistency in your preferences to some chemical addition to your body. It's not that you are taking a nicotine or caffeine or some, some opiate-type substance or alcohol, which is changing your brain chemistry. With gambling, it's all in It's all what you're doing as a human being. And so it's all psychology. Now, to say it's all psychology is not to say that there aren't, um, that it's not mediated by brain chemistry. Everything is mediated by brain chemistry, and all psychology is mediated by brain chemistry. That goes without saying. What it means to say that it's all psychology is to say that whatever we are as human beings, This is part of what we are as biological beings. This is part of what we are, which is that we have inconsistent, frequently have inconsistent (coughs) short- and long-term goals and desires. And so the reason, as I say, Ainsley picks gambling is because people are addicted to gambling and there's the same kind of inconsistency. You want to do one more play. You're going to quit. You're not going to stay at the casino If you lose your original stake, you're not going to cash, you're not going to use your credit card or go to the ATMs that some of you may know are as plentiful as slot machines in casinos. There are ATMs everywhere. Um, Why do you think that is? Yeah, there are more ATMs in a casino than in convenience shops. They're just everywhere, so you'll take out more money when you lose, and it makes it really, they make it really easy to take out money and lose more. So people come in, they have a stake. If I lose this, I'm home, I'm going home, and then, all right, what about $100 more And so bit by bit, their losses accrete, just as bit by bit, you smoke all your life, even though you keep planning for this to be your last cigarette. Bit by bit, you smoke all your life. So the short and the long term are in contradiction with each other or inconsistent with each other. And there is, and this is the slyness of the meme, you could call it, is that, has any of you, did any of you ever smoke? Do any of you smoke? You guys are just like this new generation. I applaud you. When I was in college all the English majors smoked and you could actually smoke in class it was the I remember the first class I took was philosophy one and they had tuna fish old tuna fish cans that were the ashtrays and everyone smoked and in fact there was another class that I took where the where the teacher was smoking and we were all smoking and there was this one woman in the class who said I'm allergic to smoke is there anything we can do about it could we open the window and the teacher said no it's cold outside so that was that. So much for her. Um, so when I took the GREs, you all know what the GREs are, we took them in a big auditorium, and this was a subject test so that it was the all all the different subjects were in the same auditorium. And I went in, and I said, I can't sit through a three-hour class without a cigarette. And... I mean, through a three-hour test without a cigarette, you know, this is going to affect my whole future if I'm not allowed to smoke while I'm trying to take this test. So the proctors talked to each other about it, and they said, okay, fine. All the smokers can sit in the back row of this large auditorium, and everyone else can sit in the first three rows. So there's a huge difference between the smokers and everyone else. Then they gave out the tests, and so they started out with agronomy, which no one was taking, strangely enough and then astronomy and then biology and then chemistry and all these hands in the first three rows are going up as the tests are being distributed and they get to econ, some of you will like to know all the hands in the the first three rows are going up no hands in our row, in the the smokers row is going up. Finally they say English every single hand in the back row went up and no other hands went up. So, um, cigarettes are the reason I'm here. (laughs) So, at any rate (laughs) That, what happens if you're trying to quit smoking, and this is the devilish genius of the cigarette, is that each cigarette announces itself. You think to yourself, I'm going to have one more cigarette, and then I'm going to quit. And does that make psychological sense to people? Have you, do you, can you think of of analogous things that you guys have done? Like, um, you know, it can be one last kiss, with this person you're breaking up with, one last bet on the, um, on the roll of the roulette wheel, one last drink, one last cup of coffee, one last night that I'm not going to study, and then I'm going to really buckle down and uh, work for the rest of the semester. I mean, everyone has that one last thing, right? You know what it's called in TV tropes? It's always, in, in um, movies, the story is always one last score, one last heist. You know what that is? It's like, um, okay, you know, I, I said I'd turn over a new leaf, um, but my friend really wants me to do this, and I'm going to do one last heist, and then I'm just going to um, live like an honest human being. Or the other version of that is the cop on his last day at work. So the movie begins, the, it's, um, well, honey, it's your last day. Are you excited? Yes, I'm going to be so glad to be away from all that, all, all that violence and shooting and so on. I finally made it. I got through 20 years of this, and today it's going to be over. So what's going to happen? Or there's going to be extreme danger and, and terrible things going on. So the TV trope for that is called retirony. That is, someone retiring, or so they think, but the irony is that it's not going to work out the way they think. So that idea of the one last time is, which cigarette smokers probably know best of all, but dieters know it, Um, people who are supposed to be doing their work know it, that idea of the one last time, the fiendish genius of the... Product of the thing which wants you addicted to it, and if you can, you can think about it that way. That the that if you think of a Darwinian idea of addiction, from the point of view of the addiction itself, not the person who's addicted, but from from the point of view of the addiction itself, and you econ majors should this should be catnip for you. One last bit of catnip. Um, is that you can see various behaviors competing for human attention that is the reason cigarettes are so successful is that they outcompete gum chewing as a hu- as something that humans want to do so gum chewing can be an addiction but it's a much easier addiction to break than cigarette smoking so it's as though what cigarettes are doing, if um, this is just functionalist. I'm not saying that there's consciousness there. I'm saying they act, as, they act the way organisms do in Darwin, that there are different bad habits, and, those, and they're different good habits. They're different habits. And those habits compete for the attention of people whose habits they are. And there are only so many habits that you can have. And those habits are competing for you to have them. Um, that's why people smoke so as not to eat or eat so as not to smoke. That is, these habits are competing. And when they're competing, they will modify themselves over time so that they are trying to outcompete the other habits. That they're trying to that they're trying to outcompete. So what you could say is something like um, cigarettes are competing with gum chewing, and gum chewing starts winning out. I don't know if this is a true history of chewing gum, but I wouldn't be surprised that gum chewing starts winning out when really interesting flavors are added to gum. So which and also when and this I do know is true when um, chiclets... Um, when Wrigley invents chiclets so that gum is really, really convenient. It comes packaged, it comes in little bits, you stick some gum in your mouth, you stick it under the desk, when you're done, it's all fine. And um, so what cigarettes then do is they modify themselves, they change, they... they um, um, certain variations in cigarettes become... Um, More prominent so that, for example, cigarettes start appearing pre-rolled in packs so that people no longer have to go through the fuss of getting some cigarette papers and some tobacco out of a pouch and putting the tobacco in the papers and rolling the cigarette and so on. Now cigarettes are as convenient as gum. So what do the gum makers do? They start putting caffeine in gum and putting more sugar in gum. So what do the cigarette makers do? They start flavoring cigarettes. So what you're seeing is you could see the corporations doing it to outcompete, but you could also see it just from the point of view of the cigarettes and the gum itself. And the point is that the cigarettes have to appeal, and the gum has to appeal to your short term desires, in spite of your long term desires. And then the fiendishly clever thing that they do is they make, and this is, this is part of Ainsley in a nutshell, although I don't think he puts it that way, he puts it in similar ways uh, later on. What I mean in, in other work of his. Uh, the great work, the great book that he wrote is a book called Pico Economics. So not macroeconomics, not microeconomics, but picoeconomics, which is to say the economy that's occurring in your own brain, not in your family, not in your corporation, but in your own brain. Um, He has another book which goes a little bit farther than picoeconomics but is less detailed called Breakdown of Will, where there's a pun in the title, which is your will breaks down. You don't do what you want to do, but also you can break the idea of willing down into component parts. So what Ainsley points out, and this is true of any last moment, last cigarette, last piece of gum, last jelly donut, last day that you're going to party, or last night that you're going to party instead of studying, is that you don't want to be smoking a cigarette, but the cigarette comes to you and says... Yes, we're going to quit. We're going to stop seeing each other. This is great. I am going to be the symbolic cigarette that symbolizes for you the end of smoking. And so you look at that cigarette and you say, Yes, you are the end of smoking for me. That's so great. This last cigarette is going to be the one. And then what happens is the cigarette gets itself smoked as a symbol of your desire not to smoke and so suddenly and completely strangely if you think about it you are gonna quit smoking and so you have a last cigarette. Psychologically that all makes sense to us, right? I'm gonna quit tomorrow, I'm gonna have my last cigarette tonight as Anthony says in Antony and Cleopatra come let's have one other gaudy night so you're gonna have one more cigarette and then you're going to quit. And does that make psychological sense to people? I mean, I know you don't smoke, but for any bad habit that you're trying to quit, but that also gives you pleasure, what is sometimes called an attractive nuisance. So if you can think of any bad habit that you plan to quit, but not quite yet. St. Augustine very famously said, Oh Lord, do you guys know this? Prayer of St. Augustine's, Oh Lord, help me resist temptation, but not yet. So that's a perfect example. Um, I mean, I think we all know what he's talking about, and that's a perfect example of the inconsistency in what you don't know. Um, It's a perfect example of an inconsistency in preferences. Now, if you were perfectly rational, you'd say, I don't want to smoke, and you wouldn't smoke. Um, You wouldn't have a last cigarette. You would find out that smoking was bad for you, and you you wouldn't have the last cigarette. But the last cigarette makes itself symbolic. And the way we think of symbolism is we think of things having a kind of meaning for us and being part of a story, let's say, and being part of the manifestation or the expression of our will so the cigarette symbolizes no longer smoking and as soon as it symbolizes no longer smoking then we embrace that cigarette and we smoke it so the symbol for not smoking is smoking and that's the fiendish cleverness of cigarettes is that they accrete cigarette after cigarette after cigarette they accrete this fiendish way of each single cigarette symbolizing the fact not that you're a smoker, but that you're not a smoker. And so you smoke throughout your whole life because each cigarette, or maybe each week, there's every Sunday night or every Friday night, there's going to be the last cigarette. And day after day, cigarette after cigarette, or day after day, or week after week, or month after month, the symbolism keeps perpetuating itself. And this time, you really mean it. And this time, you do think you mean it. And again, and this now goes into a second aspect of Ainsley. So the first thing to see there, then, is that there's a sense in which cigarettes can be thought of as MacGuffins themselves. That is the thing that you're looking for in a story, the object of interest. In the Maltese Falcon, the Maltese Falcon, the dingus. So the cigarette here is I'm having this last cigarette and it's symbolic and it's meaningful and I have it and when I'm done, I'm done and that's great. And so you're looking forward to that last cigarette is the way we look forward to figuring out the MacGuffin in a story, in a mystery, what the Maltese Falcon really is. Then the other thing that happens is that, and this is the other major idea that Ainsley is putting together with this, is what he calls the management of desire or the management of longing. So the other thing that happens, and this is another place where you have inconsistent preferences, is that everyone knows that food tastes better if you're hungry. Everyone who smokes knows that a cigarette is more pleasurable if you are jonesing for it. Uh, Again, the famous observation of the 1970s and 80s was the first cigarette of the day is the best, but you may know that from coffee, the first cup of coffee of the day is the best. Um, And the reason is because that's when you are most depleted of nicotine or of caffeine, and so your desire for it is at its highest and, th- and therefore the pleasure that it gives you to have the caffeine, to have the nicotine is at its greatest. So, but what happens if you know smokers, do people know smokers? Um, I'm sure this is true of vaping too, because um, I think it's addictive in the same way. What happens is that if you smoke a lot, the cigarettes are giving you no pleasure. It's like if you're a -a pack-a-day smoker, the first cigarette of the day is great. After that, maybe a cigarette after a meal, but after that, they're not really giving you pleasure. They're just keeping you on an even keel. And to get pleasure, you have to... Well, there's so many non-smoking places now that probably people do get more pleasure out of cigarettes than they used to. But back when you could smoke, when you took the GREs and in class and so on... um, Those cigarettes were, you know, it was just like a normal life, except that cigarettes were part of it. It was just, you felt the same way as non-smokers did. You didn't feel any better. You didn't feel any happier. You couldn't do anything that, um, you you weren't getting anything out of cigarettes, except that you weren't feeling shitty because you were addicted to them. So you just stayed on an even keel of non-shittiness um, the way non-smokers do which is a reason um, to not to feel that you're giving that much up if you're smoking and why people think that it would be okay to quit it's, they, no one makes the calculation cigarettes are bad for you but they, the, the, cigarettes are bad for me, but they make me feel good um, a real smoker doesn't think that way because cigarettes don't make a real smoker feel good. Cigarettes just make a real smoker not feel bad. And if a real smoker had quit, were able to quit, could go two weeks without a cigarette, they'd feel the same way as when they were smoking. The feeling bad for a couple of weeks would not be a big deal. And um, that's all that they would have to go through, and then it would be over. So, of course, you can do that. You have the will to do that, but they don't. So what Ainsley is then interested in, as I say, is the management of desire, which is that you want long-term, it's better, you will have more pleasure in life long-term if you can allow your desire for something to get intense enough that when that desire is satisfied, it's a real pleasure. So the management of desire has to do with when you feel that you want to satisfy a desire, if you satisfy it right away, then you're going to feel the way you did before. In other words, let's say that you have absolute opportunity to satisfy any desire whenever you want to satisfy it. Then... Um, what you will reveal, what your preferences reveal, will be when your desire for a drink of water is greater than your desire to sit, um, to be sitting um, on your chair and not going to the fridge to get some water or when your desire to pee will outweigh your desire not to get up or not to not to pause the movie that you're watching and all of that will be perfectly even all of that will occur on at a market clearing level where um, you do what you do because that's where the balance of what you want to do happens and so as far as Your hedonic experience... By the way, do people know what anhedonia means in um, The Noble Hustle? Colson Whitehead keeps saying he comes from the Republic of Anhedonia. Yeah? Um, It's the... intentional rejection of feelings of pleasure. Yeah. Um, Not even intentional. It's simply he's incapable of... Um, You may be an anti-hedonist, but what he's saying is that he is someone... That's how he begins the book, that he's incapable of feeling real pleasure. Um, His wife has dumped him. He is um, uh, a person who is a pessimist in general, and therefore he describes himself throughout the book as coming from the Republic of Anhedonia. Um, But if if you are completely capable... Of satisfying any desire at any moment Then the desires that you do satisfy Will be It'll just be like water finding its own level um, Your desires or your satisfactions Will be like water flowing through channels Your desires will create those channels But they will fill immediately with water What And what that means then Is that you will never If you have absolute capacity to fulfill any desire at any moment, you will never feel different from moment to moment. You'll always be feeling exactly the same way. If your desire now is to have a cigarette, and then two seconds later, your desire is to eat a french fry, and two seconds later, your desire is to pee, and two seconds later, your desire is to... Watch Game of Thrones and an hour later your desire is to call your mom and talk about it Um, as long as you can satisfy any desire that you have there will be no fluctuation this is obviously not true this can't be true in real life but the theory is the model is there would be no fluctuation in how you felt ever you would always feel exactly the same way like in the talking head song Heaven um, heaven is a place where nothing ever happens so that would that be good? if you had no fluctuation in feeling because you could satisfy any desire at any moment does that sound good or bad? bad whoa even you yay how come? so being like a baseline emotion there's not going be any happiness or sadness yeah so. yeah but the, but you could say there there would be um, unwavering satisfaction. You would always be satisfied. I don't know because I think to be satisfied you have to sometimes be unsatisfied. Yeah. So no, if you can't be unsatisfied, you can't be satisfied. Right. Okay. Good. So like, there's no. The way we know emotions, there's, there's no way to apply that. to so <coughs> Just always at baseline. Yeah. So notice this is a little bit like the sublime, that the sublime, again, is fear which is removed. So you plunge into terror, and then the terror is taken away. And so what's happened then is that there is a feeling of, there's a negative feeling, the feeling of fear or terror, and then there is rescue from that negative feeling. And that rescue is, as I mentioned before, Burke calls delight. So there isn't just this baseline hum of nothing happening, of um, satisfaction which disappears in its own perfect stability, in its own unwaveringness, so that it wouldn't be, as I agree with you, it wouldn't be satisfaction or dissatisfaction. But instead, there is a bounce-back experience, and that experience, the bouncing back, is where, the, where satisfaction actually turns into delight, into something positive, into something that you experience as good. So not having a cigarette all night and then having one, um, that is a whole lot better than smoking all day. Smoking all day, you're keeping the level of nicotine in your blood constant. Um, when you wake up in the morning, you're depleted of nicotine, And then you have a cigarette, and you get the rush of nicotine, and that's great. It's not. Don't. I mean, it's not a good thing to do. Um, It's bad for you. But uh, we can just say caffeine, which has a little bit of the same effect. So then what that means is that there is a competition within us. I'm actually quoting there will be blood, but not the way... um, Daniel Day-Lewis is meaning it, there's a competition within us of between the very short-term desire to get a satisfaction when we need it. Um, So short-term, I want a cigarette, I'll have a cigarette, or short-term, short-term, I'm hungry so I'm gonna start nibbling even though my mother is telling me don't ruin your appetite. And so there's a competition Between a desire that I have Which is to um, eat some M&Ms before dinner And a kind of desire that I have Which is to have an appetite So think about that because that's a meta-desire The desire to have an appetite is a desire to have a desire. That's what appetite means. It's a desire to have a desire. But if you define desire as something that you are trying to fill or satisfy, and the word satisfy means fill. Do you know that? Um, etymologically, satisfy means to make full. Satiation means being full. And so to satisfy, the phi in satisfy is make, and the saddest means full. So if you want to satisfy a desire, it means there there's something that is empty, like hunger, like your belly. There's something that's empty, and you want to make it full. So the definition of a desire is something that you want to put an end to. By definition, but the first and most obvious psychology of desire is that it's something you want to put an end to. If you desire something, you want that desire to cease and it will cease when you satisfy it when you eat or drink or have sex or smoke or whatever it is that will satisfy it that will cause that desire to cease but then we have a meta desire which is to have that desire last before it ceases so does everyone agree with that that this is that this a Normal human experience that you've all had. So, in Paradise Lost, um, Milton talking about sex uses gives gives the great line, um, great description of um, keeping it going as sweet, reluctant, amorous delay. That is that aspect of sexuality which is the opposite. Of um, sexual satisfaction as fast as possible which is what lots of animals do but what humans very much tend not to do and um, that is that the pleasure that you take in sexual desire is kind of a contradiction of the pleasure that you take in sexual satisfaction one ends desire and one intensifies desire not fulfilling sexual desire intensifies it, fulfilling it ends it. And so lots of people don't want to end it too soon. Lot, so this is notice this is the same structure as shield me from temptation, but not yet. Here it's, or maybe it's a different meaning of the same line, which is let me feel temptation longer. Let the temptation that I feel not be satisfied too quickly. And that, says Ainsley, is what gambling gives you. And this is a version of what we were talking about when we talked about how, running the num- how playing the numbers is a way of saving. So what Ainsley is saying is that when you gamble, what happens is that you want to win money, but if you win money as soon as you want to win it, then you're only winning it at a point where You want to win it, and then you win it, and you're fine. And up until that point, it didn't matter that much. But at that point, it matters enough that you win the money, and then you're fine. And you're just staying on an even keel. Just as you can have a cigarette whenever you want one, you will win your bet whenever you want to. You will um, have a cupcake whenever you want to. Um, All of those things are not pleasurable. So, how do you get yourself to have pleasure? So, how do you build up your appetite for... Think about, you know, going to an expensive restaurant. Why is it that you don't... That if you're really looking forward to um, the fantastic food that you're going to have in... High Country, have you gone there? That's supposed to be the best restaurant in Charleston. That's where we're going. Um, Yeah, keep it in mind. There's also Magnolia. It's the other supposedly really good restaurant. Um, Been doing our research. Um... So if you're going out to a really good meal, have you guys had this experience where you're going to go out to an expensive meal and you don't snack before the meal? Because, um, so why is it that you're not snacking if it's going to be an expensive meal? I mean, it's obvious why, which is what? You'll enjoy it more, right. Now, if that expensive meal were, if you were the kind of person who ate at that restaurant every night, would you feel that way? Probably not. So there's something special about it, so you want to enjoy it more for that reason. And in addition to that, I think the fact that the meal is expensive makes a difference. That is, if you were going to um, a cheap meal, even if it was really good, it probably wouldn't have quite the same force on you not to snack beforehand as the fact that it's expensive. Because what you don't want to do is pay a lot of money for a meal that's not going to be satisfying. And if you haven't um, allowed your hunger to sharpen, it won't be satisfying. So you don't want to do that. So the money actually has an effect on whether the expensiveness of the meal probably has an effect, even if you're not paying, just knowing that it's expensive, has an effect on whether you don't snack beforehand even if you're hungry or not. And um, so that what's going on in Ainsley's terms is there's a kind of um, alliance being made in what he calls intratemporal bargaining, an alliance being made between what you're going to um, um, pay for the meal and what it is that you're paying for, which is a pleasure which you're not going to have, you're going to pay a lot of money for a pleasure that you won't have if you snack beforehand. so for gambling again, the idea is if you could win whenever you wanted, if instead of a slot machine, what you had was an endless um, coin dispenser, and so you know you're you're um, uh, you're a billionaire, and in your In the casino where you live, because you heard casinos are fun places, so you bought one to live in, Um, there are coin dispensers instead of slot machines everywhere, and whenever you want, you can just pull a lever and get as many coins as you want. There'd be absolutely no interest in that. But if you can risk losing, and you don't know when the coins are going to come out, Then you'll put in a quarter and pull the slot and nothing will come out. You'll put in another quarter and nothing will come out. You'll put in another quarter and nothing will come out. And you'll be getting frustrated and your desire to win is going to build and build and build. And then randomly you'll win. And when you win randomly, then your desires can build up beyond where they would build up if you could satisfy them whenever you wanted to. And so that for Ainsley is part of the addiction of gambling, is that gambling makes the prize worth more than it would be worth if you could get it predictably. It's the unpredictability of gambling that makes the prize worth more, um, because it sharpens your appetite for the prize. And it's... and. This turns out to be true in psychology, that it turns out the best way to... um, in a behavioristic account of teaching and learning... Do people know what that means? So if you're you're training a rat to find some cheese, you shock it if it goes down the wrong um, pathway in a maze and um, it finds the cheese if it goes goes down the right pathway. Um, Apparently the best way to... um, tame and get a rat to do what you want it to do is something called random reinforcement, which is that it gets rewarded from time to time for doing the right thing, but not predictably. And the fact that it's not predictable, it will get rewarded from time to time for doing the right thing. But the fact that it's not predictable means it will try harder to do the right thing and to figure out how to get the reward, and all the experimenter is doing is um, rolling some dice and deciding whether to reward the rat or whether to, um, to reward the rat or not. And it's the unpredictability that causes the rat to want even more than if a reward were predictable. The unpredictability of a reward makes the rat work even harder to try to get what it wants. And so that is, all of this fits with gambling, all of this fits with Ainsley. Okay, one more thing then that I want to um, suggest about gambling and the is, um, and the risk aversiveness, the pattern of risk aversiveness, I mean, sorry, loss aversiveness that we were talking about before, is that if you think of the description um, of um, No Limit Hold'em that... Uh, that you get from Whitehead or that you may know from your own experience. Um, as you know, the little blind and the big blind have to bet without knowing how much they're betting. And, I mean, without knowing what their cards are. They have to bet even without knowing what their cards are. That's right, right. And um, that is the equivalent of imagining that you have $500 more than you do and then you can either give up $100 and have $400, or you can flip a coin and keep the $500 or go down to $300. So what happens, the genius of poker, the fiendish cleverness of poker, is that once you have anteed, and the big blind and the little blind are a kind of refinement, a fiendish refinement of the very idea of anteing, but once you've anteed, once you've put money in the pot, then your loss-aversiveness kicks in, which is it's your money that's in the pot. And you're not thinking to yourself, okay, once that money is in the pot, it's not mine anymore. It is your money that's in the pot. And so in order to try to avoid losing that money, you will stay in a lot of people everyone who's not purely rational will stay in a game when their cards are saying they shouldn't. They'll stay in a game when the likelihood is they lose more money by staying in than by not staying in. They stay in the game because it's a sure loss if they fold versus a possible loss but also maybe you won't lose if you stay in. In fact, maybe you'll win. Yeah? The sunk cost value. Exactly. So it's another idea of um, there's a sunk cost, and you, because you're loss-aversive, you're trying to get it back. And um, that loss-aversiveness is, um, is the genius of a game like poker. In roulette, there isn't quite the same thing. In roulette, the the loss has to occur over several games. That is, you put some money on black, you lose it. You say, oh, no, I didn't mean to do this. Well, let me double my bet on black, and if I win, I'm just going to go home. And But it's, again, that's sunk cost. You've already lost money. Go away. Don't, pl- don't keep playing. But you're trying to get back the money that you've lost. And um, so... How do you do that in roulette or poker? Well, again, I think in... I've actually never played Hold'em. I mean, we did at a dinner table once, but not seriously. Um, But what happens is there's a MacGuffin there, and the MacGuffin is the last card. That is, if you want to know what the last card is, if you want to um, hope to win on the basis of this unknown last card where the story will tell you what the last card is, if you stick with the story, then you have to pay to figure out what the MacGuffin is. And that's what happens in any narrative about a MacGuffin. What is the Maltese Falcon? You can walk away and never find out, or you can pay by taking risks to find out. So the MacGuffin, in an odd way, that's um, a loss that you want to avert And the loss that you want to avert is simply the possession of what the MacGuffin is, but it's also what will help you avert a loss and maybe turn into a win if the last card is the ace that you're hoping for, or the two that you're hoping for because you have a pair of twos in your hand. Um, So you continue with the story. You don't bail from it because you want to know what the MacGuffin is. That's what Hitchcock does and you don't bail from the poker game because you want to know what the last card is it's not knowing in quite the same way you can watch the game and still know what the last card is but you want to be you want to know whether the last card will not would but will allow you to win and the only way that it will allow you to win is if you stay in the game so it has the narrative. So so it has the narrative um, function that a MacGuffin does in a story like *The Maltese Falcon* or like *The Thirty-Nine Steps*, to allude to a great Hitchcock movie. And that narrative function is another way that gambling and narrative go together. Okay, don't lose too much money over break, and um, see you in just under a couple of weeks. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.